trials and temptations are real, aren't they? I mean, we, we were just singing about that, that this life, if there's anything we can be sure of, what, what's the saying, right? Death and taxes. And I mean, we know taxes, that's, that's a suffering. We don't even have to talk about that. We don't like those. But, right, death, that we know that death, the, the likelihood is 100%. Like we're going to die. And it's not just dying, right? It's just sufferings in this world. I'm not going to lie, I was reminded of it yesterday, at least, at least I felt this way. Kristen and I, we, we, uh, we were at our house, and uh, we were just getting a little stir-crazy, right? James was like, we got to get out of here, all right? He was saying that as a toddler, so you can imagine what that looked like, but he was saying, we got to get out of this place. So we were like, you're right, son, we do. So we went to the only place you can go when it's freezing outside, because it was cold, wasn't it? We went to the mall. We didn't buy anything. We just walked around, right? We just walked around because it's a massive heated place. So we walk around the mall. But before we get there, it's so cold outside. Like it is freezing outside. We get out there and I'm like, oh gosh, we got to get the stroller out. We got to, I'm like, is it even worth it? Let's just go back home. Like this is how I'm feeling. It's just so cold. And then we finally, we bear through this horrible trial of the cold, right? And we get inside and you know what we smell. Like soon after us being in there, I'm trying to lose weight. I, I shared this on the first. I'm trying to lose a little weight. And I, we get in there, and I just smell this wonderful, this waft of cinnamon and sugar. And, and then we go to the Great American Cookie, and that's just pure sugar. And I'm like, oh, this is just the trials and temptations of life. They're just so difficult, right? Now, I mean, like, <laughs> for real, though, our life really is. It's full of trials and temptations. I mean, I mean it's been said that you're either in the midst of a suffering, coming out of a suffering, or about to go into a suffering. That that's really describing the human experience. That that is our life. And in the midst of that, we also have temptations. But it's not just while we're, uh, while we're in the midst of suffering, though that is the case, and especially uh, true. But we have temptations literally all the time, day in, day out, every moment. So what do we do when we have those? In the midst of trials and temptations, if this is part of the human experience, if this is what it means to be human in the midst of a fallen, broken world, what do we do about that? And that's how James begins his letter. A very practical letter of how do we apply the gospel in the midst of our trials and temptations. And what we're going to see is our big idea that faith is tested through trials and temptations. That's in the midst of it going on, that our faith will be tested. It will be shown. It will be revealed and refined. Let's pray, and we'll dive into James chapter 1 together. Father, we thank you this morning that we can gather together. I pray that you would empower me as I preach the gospel, that your spirit will move in powerful ways that I can't. I thank you so much for our missional partner with the Southern Baptist of Virginia, the, the Youth Evangelism Conference that they had this weekend, even some of our college students faithfully serving there this weekend. I pray for the 900 or so students that were there, those middle and high school students, and many that made uh, confessions of faith. Father, I pray that the local churches here in our area would be able to disciple and deploy those students for gospel mission. I pray that you would do that here in our city, that you would do that this morning here amongst us. In Jesus' name, amen. So go ahead, jump into James chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It starts off as a letter in the New Testament starts off. It says, James, he's telling you who's writing this letter. And this James is the brother of Jesus. That's right, he's not just one of the average James in the New Testament. It's a pretty popular name in the New Testament, in fact. But this, this is Jesus' brother. So this guy, he knows Jesus really well, right? You would assume that he's always been following Jesus, 
But that's not been the case, right? If you look through the New Testament, you find that Jesus' family, outside of Mary, that they really don't like Jesus. And in fact, it's not that they don't like Jesus. They, they in fact, think he's kind of crazy. And later you see in the New Testament as well that though they've been, he uh, grew up around Jesus, he even heard different teachings he had as, as Jesus became a man, that they even wanted to do harm to Jesus. That's how bad, that's how far off, that's how against they were to Jesus. But we learn in 1 Corinthians 15 that amongst many people, James saw that everything that Jesus said was true because he saw the risen Christ. He saw that Jesus walked out of the grave and his life changed. Not only was his life changed, was he forgiven, was he given new life in Christ, but then he as well became a major leader, probably a top three leader in, the, in that New Testament church there. He was the lead pastor of the church of Jerusalem, which is probably the first megachurch in the history of the world. This guy is a big deal. And so when he starts a letter, if he wants to come in and teach you something, you could say that, you know what, I'm just going to put all my credentials on the table. So you should listen to me, right? But that's not how James starts off. He doesn't start off saying, hey, I, the lead pastor of the biggest church in the world, I, the adopted half-brother of Jesus, let me tell you something, I, the guy that grew up with Jesus, I, the guy that saw the risen Jesus, you didn't, I know you're trusting in it, but you didn't actually see it. No, what does he say? He says, I, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He describes himself as a servant, or better translated, actually a slave of Christ. That he is saying that I have no authority, I have no power, I have no way to provide for myself. I am completely reliant on who? Jesus, who I believe is God, the Lord, meaning the King, the Sovereign, and the Christ. Which is not a, like a last name, by the way, it's a title. It's Messiah, Savior, the promised anointed one. That's who he believes Jesus is. And he starts off, and he's writing this letter to whom? to the 12 tribes, meaning all Christians. Likely he's talking largely to Jewish Christians, culturally Jewish, and now believers, those who have repented and believed in the risen Savior of Christ. And they are in the dispersion. The dispersion is a technical term you see in the New Testament. It's that the New Testament church, they were dispersed, right? In Acts chapter 7, you know the story. One of the key leaders in the Jerusalem church, likely one of James's best friends, Stephen, is stoned and then what happens at the end of seven and going into chapter eight you have this guy named Saul we know him better as Paul and he begins to persecute the church him and others and the church it scatters it disperses in the midst of persecution now that actually leads to the proclamation of the gospel to the world but what that means is these people they're spread around everywhere they're in the midst of suffering because they're not in their homeland. They're in a foreign land. And now they're not accepted and loved as they've been, as they've been for their entire life. No, in fact, they, they realize that what they believed their entire life was a lie. And now they're trusting in the risen Savior, but they're dispersed because of it. They're separated from their families. And not only that, but they're, they're being persecuted. Perhaps when they want to go buy things from the store or have build relationships with people, no one wants to be around them. They're in the midst of persecution. Many of them suffering as well as they're poor and suffering in multiple ways, emotionally, lonely, pain. They're in the midst of suffering. And what would they experience is trials and temptations, which is exactly what we experience in our human life too. So James comes in and he says, hey, I'm just a servant of Jesus. And let me talk to you real, like just real face to face. In the light of the gospel, what do we do with trials and temptations? You know, the world has a, a very specific narrative of, like, why do we suffer in the first place? 
Like, what is it for? And, and what should we do about it? What is it going to produce? And what does it lead to? Really simply, the world, it says that suffering, like, what do we do about it? We should just self-medicate. Now, real quick, what I don't mean by that is that in light of the broken, fallen world, that, that we holistically are broken, fallen. And so if you struggle with emotional health and, and, a, and a doctor, a, a, a licensed therapist is, is walking with you in medicine, that, that's not a bad thing. That's not what I'm getting at here. What I'm saying, though, is the temptation, the, the world, the, the way away from Christ is to say that, you know what, suffering, it, it really has no purpose. I just need to get through it. I need to, through money, sex, and power, I just need to cover it up. I need to make it go away. I need to ease the pain. That's what I need to do in, su- in suffering. I just need to self-medicate in whatever way that that paints itself for you. And that, like, why? What, what is it going to produce for suffering? Just pain. That's all it's going to produce. Like, there's no hope in it. In fact, what it ultimately leads to is hopelessness. And so we just, again, let's just self-medicate. Let's just make it, let's just make it go away. Let's just make it where we don't feel as much. Let's put it under the rug because ultimately... It's only going to lead to pain, and it doesn't lead to anything. But James comes in, and he comes in with a very different narrative for you and me. This is what the world teaches. This is what is in the back of our mind. This is a soundtrack playing in our head when we experience trials. But what does the gospel have to say? Verse 2. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, brothers and sisters, family in Christ, those who have repented and believed. When? when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, there's a lot here. First of all, he's saying, as he's talking to Christians, so he's saying, hey, this is a different narrative than what the world preaches. But when you meet trials, not not if, right? This is part of the human experience. When you meet trials, when you have sufferings of various kinds, meaning this, that suffering is not a competition. I've been around others at times that will they'll, they'll share their heart of something that they're going through. And others, because they're perhaps older or they've gone through harder things, they're like, yeah, that, that's hard. But you know what? Later in life, you'll, you'll really get, the, uh, you'll really experience some really hard things. I just want to say, if that's your temptation, stop it. Like, that's not loving to each other. Suffering is not a competition. We are in a broken, fallen world. Now, yes, as we go through life longer and experience more, sufferings, they add up. And not only that, but as more time happens, more opportunity for more difficult sufferings happen. I'm not trying to belittle that at all. But suffering is not a competition. He said when trials of various kinds, and James knows this intimately. In fact, we know from church history that eventually James is martyred for his faith. He goes all the way to the ultimate. He dies for his faith. But here he says, when you experience trials, of meet trials of various kinds, what do you do? The world says you should self-medicate, but what, what is he saying? Count it all joy. Now, if you're paying attention, like that should sound ridiculous to you. Because again, the world says like it's not worth anything. It's not going to lead to anything. It's only pain. You should just hide it. You should do anything to cover it up, to ease it, to numb it. But he's saying, count it all joy. Now, I've said this to you before, but just as a reminder, like our temptation when we read this is to think that, that he's saying like, hey, remember that like old vbs like sunday school song right i've got the joy 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 my mom just died i lost my job like is that what we're supposed to do like of course not that's ridiculous so what is he saying here when james and when the new testament describes joy it's talking about a sure hope 
for the future in Christ. That's, that's what joy, that's what Christian, that's what biblical joy is. It's a sure hope for the future in Christ. So what is that sure hope for the future in Christ? Well, he tells us, verse 3, he says, for you know, right? It's this sure hope. It's not maybe it'll happen. It's like, I hope, like how we typically use that word in the English. No, no, no. For you know, you can take this to the bank, that the testing of your faith, the refining, that's what this word is getting at, it produces something. It's not only pain, as the world would tell you. No, no, it produces steadfastness. It's, it's what we were exactly just singing, right? It's, it produces patience. It produces perseverance that you can endure. That your faith, it's not just something that saved you, right? As we trust in the risen Savior, that he really did die the death that you deserve, and then he walked out of the grave, and as we repent and believe the gospel, that we are given salvation, given life. Yes, that salvation saved you, but it is saving you. It is bringing you and giving you this perseverance that we, the saints, would persevere to the end. That's what genuine faith is. It's that we were once saved and then we are always saved, but also that once saved, we are forever following. And that in the midst of our sufferings, that Christ is not wasting your suffering. He's not wasting your trials. That in fact, he's using it as a vehicle to save you. In fact, that that's what this steadfastness leads to. Verse four, and let steadfastness have its full effect. Where does it lead to? That you may be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. Which is not our ex- human experience right now, is it? But he's saying that is a sure hope for the future in Christ. That when Jesus walked out of the grave, he said, this world is mine. I have dominion over everything. And when I return, I will right every wrong. All your sufferings will be gone. And here, we will have perfect and complete. We will be that. And we will be lacking in nothing. You will be like Christ. Quite simply, that our suffering leads to salvation. That's why we can count it joy. Now, if we don't always have the human like emotion of feeling happy with joy, now, though sometimes you will, but that we count it, we reckon it, we consider it. God, this is painful. That's something that the world's narrative does get right. But it's not only pain. No, that our suffering that what do we do? We consider, we count it joy. It produces steadfastness. And it leads to salvation. That Jesus is not, he's not wasting your suffering. He's doing something with it. And we know this is true. Not just because the half-brother of Jesus said it. Not just because some big lead pastor, one of the key leaders in the, in the New Testament, the early church said it. But because Jesus suffered for you this is exactly his narrative that he came and suffered through the cross why for you in your place and so when you suffer you can consider it joy even when the only emotion you might feel is i hurt so much the only emotion you feel is i am so lonely of why is that person gone Or why is this thing still here? That Jesus knows, and he cares, and he loves you. And he suffered in your place. And he's not going to waste your suffering. 
He's crying those tears with you. He is holding your hand with you with his nail-pierced hands. And one day he'll come back. And you will be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. You will be like Jesus. And you will be with Jesus. And that's a hope that we can, we can wait for. But the reality is, we're not there right now. Like, we do have suffering. Way worse than just like, it's cold outside. <laughs> like, we are lacking in something. Lacking in a lot of things, in fact. But James, he's going to point out, I think, maybe one of the key ones. Verse 6. So we can hope for this one day when we will be lacking in nothing, right? Excuse me, verse 5, sorry. He says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, he's saying you, you are lacking something. It's wisdom. Let him ask God. So the reality is when we do suffer, we are lacking something. We, we are lacking the steadfastness and this, this longing for Christ. And so we need wisdom. Not knowledge, it's really knowledge applies. It's this discernment. It's not the why, but it's the how. How will I remain steadfast, God? Because I do hurt. Because I am exhausted. Because I am lonely. Because I am in pain. Because I don't know what to do. God, how is this going to actually play out? That's what we need wisdom for. And James says you have to ask for it because you are lacking in it. Like we should just readily admit that immediately. As soon as you realize I'm suffering. Like I'm hurting. I'm in pain. I'm tired. I'm sad. You should immediately hit your knees say, God, give me wisdom. How can, I, how can I remain steadfast in the midst of this? I am lacking, and I need help. Jesus, you persevere to the end. I need you to help me persevere to the end. How can I do that? He tells us, he says, this God who you go to, he gives generously to all. This is a prayer he will answer. And he'll answer it without reproach. He's not going to get angry at you. He's not going to get annoyed at you because you keep praying that to him every single minute of the day. Now he says, I'm going to keep giving you wisdom of how you can do this step by step. And it will be given him. Verse 6, but, this is important, let him ask in faith. So yes, we are lacking in this wisdom. We need to know how to persevere, but we have to ask. And we have to ask in faith. With no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. You see, he tells us that this person, that person, verse 7, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord if they're not asking in faith because he is a double-minded man. I heard described this week, they are a spiritual schizophrenic. They're unstable in all their ways. They have no ability to be able to truly trust in Jesus. The idea here is that they're truly trusting in Christ. What this is not is what many of you perhaps grew up in in a tradition that said you cannot have any questions in your faith. This is not saying that we can't ask the why question in the midst of our suffering. You see that throughout the Old Testament. It's very clear, in fact. But what this is saying is that in the midst of our suffering, who are we trusting in? Are we trusting in Jesus? Or are we trusting in ourselves? Because the world's narrative is to self-medicate. It's to, it's to trust in yourself. I can fix this, or I can tap into this external thing that will help numb it, will help hide it, will help put it under the rug, will help it just go along faster. Who are you trusting in when we ask for this wisdom? Because if we ask to Jesus, if we come to Jesus in faith, friends, he will give us that wisdom. He will help us to persevere. 
But if we trust in ourselves, we are a double-minded man or woman. We are unstable in all our ways. He doesn't answer that prayer. In fact, he's going to give you a really practical example of exactly what that looks like. Verse 9, he says, Let the lowly brother, the, the humble, those who are suffering, those who are going through a trial, let them boast in his exaltation. He's saying this, when you're in the midst of the trial and you cry out to God, you can brag to him because he gave you wisdom because you're not trusting in your wisdom. But, let the verse 10, let the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he'll pass away. He said, imagine just a wildflower. Nobody planted it there and it's, it might even look really nice. It might be beautiful. It might be something you want to look at. But, for the sun rises with its scorching heat. He's describing the trials and tribulations, the sufferings of the world through the sun. He says, they'll go through suffering if they're relying on their riches. And with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes. The thing that it was trusting in, it will go away. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James is saying that we have to come to Christ in faith, trusting in Him and Him alone in the midst, not just of our salvation, but as we are being saved for this wisdom of how can I remain steadfast? How can I actually do this? Because I see no way but to fall to the world's lies of how to do it. How can I do that? And he says, if you ask in faith that you will be exalted, you will be given this wisdom, but if you trust in yourself, if you trust in anything else, you're just going to be like this rich man who, yeah, had the money, but it just all faded away. We're just going to be like a flower that eventually is scorched up and dies. And here, like, who is James talking to? Because when you read the Bible, you have to remember that the James is writing to someone, and it ain't you and me. <laughs> like, it's not us, right? He's writing a letter to a specific group of people. It's the 12 tribes and the dispersion. Right? We saw that in verse 1. But there's a wonderful reality that while he's not writing it to you, he is writing it for you. He is writing it for us. So if James was talking to us today, then who is he talking to? Can I give you a clue? He's talking about you. Right? Like he's talking about you and me. Because who are the rich? Like it's us. Then maybe you're like, Daniel, <laughs> you don't know my finances. I'm a college student. Like, Ramen, that's my deal, right? That's all I got. Unless I'm going to the, to, uh, like, to the cafeteria or whatever, that's all I got. That's all I can pay for. I get it. I was there. But seriously, in the midst of the world that we live in now and in world history, who's the rich? It is us right now. Now, I'm not trying to belittle, the though it is a slim population, the very real needs of genuine poverty in our city. Jesus doesn't overlook those, neither do we as a church. But... Historically, contextually, we're exactly who he's talking to. That, like, you know, Kristen and I were talking about it. Um, she, uh, we do most of our grocery shopping uh, at Aldi because uh, we want to save some money and the food's so good. And, like, a year or two ago or so, like, eggs were like, I don't know, 50 cents a dollar, something like that. And now, Eggs are like four or five dollars. You seen this? Like they're just like these golden eggs. You would ex you would think like like Valentine's Day. It's right around the corner. I'm just gonna go ahead and give a spoiler to my wife. Like you're not gonna get like this beautiful jewelry. We're gonna get you know here's a dozen eggs. Right? <laughs> Every kiss begins with eggs. That's 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 gonna be my new tagline. Right? Like it's just expensive. Right? But in the midst 
of a first world problem. That's the kind of stuff that we complain about. Again, I'm not trying to belittle. Some of you genuinely are in the midst of something. I'm not trying to belittle that at all. And in fact, our church wants to come alongside of you. We would love as pastors to talk to you. But, um, but seriously, like our temptation is to trust in our strength, which in the midst of 2023, that's weird to say, but in the midst of 2023 in America, we're the people who it's very easy to trust in our things, to trust in our stuff, to trust in the fact that you have a paycheck or you have someone funding you. But not just rich financially, though that is a large categorical, and that's the main thing he's talking about. He's talking about rich in other ways. Rich in personality. Maybe you're like, hey, in the midst of suffering, I can always just kind of, you know, I can just tough through it. I'm just an optimist, right? I'm just always, the glass is full. It's not half full, it's just always full, right? Or you know what, I'm just always happy. I'm just always the fun guy. I'm always funny, whatever it is. Or maybe, maybe you're trusting in the richness of your intellect. I can always just outsmart it. I can do this or that. I'm always smart enough. I can do that. Or, you know, I, it's the richness of my looks or it's the richness of my resume or whatever it is. If we trust in anything but Jesus, then you are falling to the lie of the world, which will ultimately lead to suffering and more suffering, pointless suffering that will never end. But for those who in faith trust in Christ, what does James say is the reality, the sure hope for them? Verse 12. He says, blessed is the man. If you grew up in an old school tradition, blessed, right? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. This is a, a victor's crown, like for, a, for an athlete, right? This is, the, this is the trophy. This is the big ring for the Super Bowl. This is, uh, you know, this is the trophy which God has promised to those who love him. James says, this is a sure hope for the future in Christ. If you remain steadfast, if you persevere during suffering, steadfastness in suffering leads to salvation. And that's good news. Steadfastness in suffering leads to salvation. You will be considered blessed. Just as James here, he's counting back to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He was likely there. What does Jesus say in those Beatitudes? He says, blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And James, he's just ripping off of them. He says, man, this is exactly what Jesus said. You will be blessed as you remain steadfast. Which is interesting, right? Because James, what did he say in verse 3? He says that your faith will produce steadfastness. So this is something that God does that you don't do. You didn't, you didn't do that. No, God gave you that gift. But then he tells us here at the conclusion of that, in verse 12, he's going to give you that steadfastness. But when he gives you the wisdom, you have to then step in faith and actually be steadfast. God is doing this work. And he does it in and through you that we have to remain steadfast to the end. Friends, this is how we suffer. And that we as believers, we believe that our suffering is not wasted. In fact, that it is very purposeful. That God does allow suffering in the midst of this world as He is waiting for all who will come to Christ 
But that one day, he will end suffering. But he is using it. That's how big our God is. In the midst of our fallen, broken world that has suffering everywhere because of what? Our sin. That God would redeem it. And that he would use it to save you. That's a good God. That's a glorious God. And it leads to a practical question though. Again, I told you, James is really practical. So like, how do we suffer then? Like, as we do suffer in this world, how do we do it? And I think throughout these 12 verses, we'll continue on here in a moment, through verses 13 to 18, but he tells us kind of these breadcrumbs of how do you suffer well. He told you in verse 2 who he was really writing to. What did he say? He says, count it all joy, my brothers. Again, he, he's saying brothers and sisters. It, it's, it's kind of collecting that all in that one word. This is men and women who are in Christ. But what that means is that he's not writing just to you. Just to you, just to you, just to me. He's writing to us. In fact, the vast majority of the New Testament, that's exactly how it's written. In fact, you can't understand the New Testament without the understanding of the local church. It's all written with that as the underpinnings that we're part of in a meaningful gospel partnership with a local church. And here he says, my brothers and sisters, suffer well. So first, James is making very clear, how do we suffer well? We do it in community. We need one another. That's part of that wisdom. That's part of this gift that helps us to persevere to the end, that helps us have this steadfastness, that we need one another. I need you to bear my burdens. You need me to bear your burdens. We need to care for one another. And notice who is saying this. Again, this is the guy who's leading the church that we've studied multiple times just in the past few months in Acts chapter 2. The church that gathered and scattered, and they cared for over 3,000 people, meeting their needs daily. And how did they do that? They did it in small groups. They did it in what we call community groups. They're loving and caring for and serving one another. And so that's why earlier when I told you that this is the best way to get connected to the church, that's not just because we think that's some cute idea. That's because this world is full of suffering. And we can't fall to the lie of the world that I can just self-medicate and I can just do this on my own. I can just pull myself up from my bootstraps. No, we must suffer together. So if you're not in a group, I would encourage you. I mean, seriously, right now, just select on the back of the card that you'd like to get plugged in. That's a great first step for you, perhaps. But then secondly, we, yes, we suffer in community, but as well, he tells us to persevere by faith. Right, that we must persevere. We must continue on, but in faith. Trusting in that sure hope for the future in Christ. In the midst of that, thirdly, we ask for wisdom. That you actually pray when you suffer, the moment you suffer, God, help me. How do I persevere? Help me know. As we do that, number four, we trust in Jesus. We trust in Jesus alone. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in the world's wisdom. Don't look for the ways you can medicate. Don't look for the ways that you can push it aside. And as you do this, that you long for Jesus' return. You long for that sure hope for the future in Christ when Jesus does right every wrong. Friends, this is how we suffer well. As we, as gospel people, suffer. As we go through trials, we know that Jesus isn't wait, wasting it. But in the midst of those trials, James has one more thing that he needs us to know. 
that our life is not just full of trials. It's full of temptations. It's full of temptations all the time. But they're especially concentrated during trials. That as we are at our weakest point, that we are specifically and very uh, uh, potentially tempted. So what do we do in the midst of that? Because our temptation is going to be to say, God, I'm going through this suffering and you don't even seem to care. In fact, now I'm just getting tempted. Now I am getting tempted to just look to money, sex, and power, anything I can to self-medicate, to hide it, to do anything I can. God, I'm so tempted by that. Maybe you're even tempting me. Maybe you're bringing this on me. And James, he tells us in verse 13, he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Why? Because God can't be tempted with evil and he can't tempt anyone. God doesn't tempt you. He can't be tempted himself. This is out of his nature. This is not something that God can do. He's not tempting you. So then what is temptation? How can we understand it? What what is it even about and what can we do about it when we are tempted? And that's what James is going to do for these last few verses. He's going to dissect temptation and sin. It's probably, it's, it's been described as probably the best uh, explanation of really what is temptation and sin and how does it work right here. So zone in. What is it that when we're tempted, whether it's in the midst of trials or just throughout our everyday life, when things are good, how does it work and what can we do about it? He says this, verse 14, but each person, meaning it's everybody, right? Like you don't graduate until you die and become like Jesus, you're glorified. You don't graduate from being tempted. I don't care how young you are. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how long you've been in the faith or how short you've been in the faith or if you're not a Christian. Everyone is tempted. You are tempted every single day and don't let the enemy lie to you as if now you've moved past that because that's exactly what he wants you to think. No, he says, but each person is tempted. This is universal. When he, he or she, is lured, enticed. This is kind of fishing language, right? Like he's, there, something is trying to go at you. And you assume that it's Satan. You assume he's going to say, the enemy, right? That little devil on your shoulder. That's the one. It's his fault. Then while we are in, a, in the midst of genuine uh, spiritual battle, we do have a real enemy, Satan. We do have his, enemy, his, uh, his minions, the demons that are coming at us and tempting us. Yes, that is real. James even talks about it some. But here, he tells you, what is the root? By his own desire. You want to know where it all starts? It ain't that red guy's fault. It's you. That's where it started. It starts with me. Why do I sin? because it's me i mean we looked in the at the beginning of our christmas series we saw in genesis chapter three really at the inception sadly of sin and what we saw there was adam and eve are tempted that eve is deceived and adam rebelled in the midst of that they saw and they took and when they saw they had these desires now what james is going to tell us is he's going to tell us that these desires they turn into something Because these desires in and of themselves, they're not necessarily sinful. Like they're not necessarily sin in and of themselves. Perhaps you desire food. Well, that's a good thing. God has even created us to eat. Like you you see Adam and Eve, you see like this is a normal thing in the Bible. That's not necessarily sinful. 
It's not necessarily sinful to desire sex. It's not necessarily sinful to desire friendships. It's not necessarily uh, sinful to desire money. None of these things in and of themselves necessarily are sinful. But it's when these desires turn into something else and how they are twisted and lured by our desires. In fact, verse 15, check it out. It says, then desire, when it has conceived, when it's turned the corner, and when those good desires, in fact, those good gifts that we'll see here in a moment in verse 17, when those good gifts from a good God, when they get perverted, when they get twisted, when they change, and you want a good thing at the wrong time or in the wrong way. That's what really our temptation is coming at. That we want a good thing, but we want it in the wrong time or we want it in the wrong way. That's where we're tempted. Of saying, God, you know, like I, I, maybe you're just a man. I, I just want money. And I want it right now. And I will do anything to get it. I need that. That's what will give me happiness. That's what will give me fulfillment. Friends, that's temptation. It's taking your desire and enticing you and luring you. Maybe it's sex. God, I know that you say one man, one woman in a married relationship, that that's where gift is a, that rather sex, sex is a gift to, to mankind. But God, I want it now. I want it in a different way. Friends, this is just the lie of the enemy. That we will have these desires and he will take it. He will twist it. He will pervert it. And he will take it and say, yeah, but maybe God doesn't want you to have that. Maybe he just wants you to suffer. Maybe he's just tempting you because he's a bad guy. Maybe he just wants you to hurt. Maybe he just wants to see you squirm. But what we know is that this temptation, it leads to something. It says that when... This desire, it has conceived, it has turned into temptation, it ultimately gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it leads to death. I mentioned uh, during the announcements that last week I was gone. I was, uh, I'm in a leadership cohort, I'm, I'm kind of wrapping up soon, and was visiting a church, just kind of learning about a, a discipleship plan for our church. And we were in Miami. So, as you guys were cold, I was really suffering for the Lord in South Beach. Sorry about that. Um, weather was perfect, not going to lie. And I don't know if you've ever been to Miami, but uh, when I was in Miami, I was just smacked right in the face. Like, you want to see money, sex, and power on display? That is a city you can go to, and you'll see it everywhere. Like, I've never seen so many Lambos in my life. <laughs> like, just nice cars, and not just nice cars, right? Just, like, things and consumerism, like, just whatever the phone is, whatever the watch is, whatever the clothes. Like, I'm, just, I'm like, wow, people dress like that? Man, I really need to, like, step up my game here. And, uh, but not just that, like, sex on display, power on display, just pursuing all these things. And the world would say, this is what leads to happiness. Like, everyone's just pursuing this. I was talking to one of the church planters there in Miami. And he was telling me, he lives right in the middle of the city, uh, him and his family. He told me that right uh, the week leading up to Christmas, there's all these high rises. They're beautiful. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And he was walking through the city and he heard a loud thump. It's because that week, two people jumped from their building. Like that, that's what our temptation in pursuing to self-medicate ourselves in the midst of trials, to pursuing and ultimately just fulfilling our desires, of wanting these desires in the wrong time and in the wrong way, 
that ultimately it leads to sin. And ultimately, while it might not lead to death physically in that way, ultimately, yes, that is why we experience physical death, but we will experience spiritual death because of it. Friends, this is where it leads to. And the enemy wants to lie to you. and say, no, it's not that bad. You can get forgiveness later. But friends, our temptations, they must be dealt with. They must be dealt with seriously. But the good news of the cross is this, that every time we sin, that yes, we are separated from God, and ultimately that brings us spiritual death. We are separated from a good and holy God because of that. But here is where the good news is, that Jesus bore that for you. That someone will be punished for that sin. Spiritual death, physical death will happen because of that. And so the question is, will Jesus bear that or will you? For those that don't trust in Christ, friends, that burden, that bearing is still on you and me. Our sin defines us. Where we can't say like James at the beginning of the book that he is a slave of Jesus. No, we say we are a slave to sin. But friends, for those who trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, they are forgiven. Their sin is placed on Jesus' shoulders. And now they can say, I'm not a slave to sin anymore. I'm a slave to Christ. But in the midst of this world, we do experience trials. We do experience temptations. So how can we fight? How can we kill sin? How can we not be, as he says in verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. How can we fight it? My, one of my pastoral mentors, Dayton Hartman, he, he has a helpful list I want to walk through real quick of how do we fight sin. Number one, if it starts with these desires, you have to know what your desires are. You have to know where and how your heart will drift, where and how the enemy will tempt you. Of, you know what, I really enjoy these things. I enjoy these good gifts from God, these desires. This is how I'm going to be tripped up. And then you have to run, secondly, from temptation. The Bible is full of these, of these uh, commands that we should run. We should flee from temptation. It's funny, if we're around something, I don't know if you've ever been around something that's deadly, but if you're around that, you don't just hang out. You don't ask, how, like, how far is too far, right? Like, you're not like, how close can I get to this thing? You get out of there. Like, you run away. But we don't do that with, tem- to, with temptation. We don't do that with sin. Friends, it is just as deadly, and we as believers must run from temptation. We have to know the consequence. We have to remind ourselves that this is, yes, will lead to spiritual death, but as well, it will lead to suffering. It will lead to more sin. It will not bring satisfaction. No, it will only bring suffering. It will only bring death. But fourthly, and this is where James wraps up as we finish up today, we have to celebrate the good gifts of God. Those desires are desires that God gave us. But as we take them, we pervert them, we change them. We do them at the wrong time or we do them in the wrong way. Against God and his nature. Against what is a good gift from God. Friends, that's where sin and temptation takes place. But as we look to God and celebrate his good gifts, friends, we can fight sin. That's why he says this in verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It's from God himself. It's coming down from the Father of lights. It is directly from God with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. God is always consistent. He is always good. He is always that generous God who gives you wisdom when you ask for it. God gave you these desires to find your satisfaction in him. 
that we find our pleasure, we find our hope, we find our salvation, not in the things of this world, but in Jesus and in Jesus alone. That He is the good gift giver who is the good God. And as we trust in that good gift giver, our reality is verse 18. That of His own will, not meaning anything that you did, but only what God did, He brought us forth by the word of truth, by that gospel message. That the way and the reason we can have faith in the midst of trials and temptations is because God saved you. It's because of this word of truth, the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection in your place. And this gift as we repent and believe the gospel that we can endure. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That we would be like Jesus. And that he, as he is in this project to make all things new, that we would be part of that. Friends, that is a good news. And that is hope in the midst of trials and temptations. This world is full of it. Our entire life experience is just defined by trials and temptations. But Jesus suffered and was tempted in your place. And let's be a people that trust in Him and Him alone. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your good news. Because this world is full of bad news. Like we do, we suffer all the time. There's hardship, there is sin. Sin and suffering is everywhere. And Father, You gave us Jesus who stepped into the midst of our sin and suffering. Who was tempted and tried in our place and He was faithful. Father, help us to have faith to the end. That we would have joy, a sure hope for the future in Christ. Help us to believe as we unbelieve. As we don't have belief, Father, give us that hope. Give us that belief. Give us the wisdom we need. And for anyone here that's not saved, that their suffering is pointless. That they have no way out of their sin because they are not a slave to Christ, they are a slave to sin. Father, through your Spirit, draw them to the saving faith in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.